Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Excited to kick off our summer series today with a roundtable discussion about universal design for learning. UDL, of course, is a framework that maximizes learning opportunities for all learners and is based on three main principles, multiple means of engagement, multiple means of representation, and multiple means of action and expression. Each of those principles has a fairly detailed set of guidelines and is really aimed at helping educators improve how we present information, how we engage students, and how we create more inclusive environments, especially more inclusive assessment environments. Now at its best, UDL, while it won't eliminate it entirely, does reduce the need for special accommodations for students. Now joining me today for this discussion are Fatima Sami, Jackie Duncan, and Alicia Poling. Fatima Sami is an eighth grade science teacher and a teacher leader at the Putnam Avenue Upper School in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Her teaching focuses on instructional practices and routines that enable students to develop into independent learners. Fatima also serves as an education consultant for the Diversity Education and Outreach Office of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. In that role, Fatima trains scientists to engage with students and collaborates on interactive biocoding curriculum. Jackie Duncan is the UDL district coordinator and a high school English teacher within the Shelby City Schools in Shelby, Ohio. Jackie has taken a rather non-traditional path in education, has started with a tour in the U.S. Marine Corps, uh, law enforcement as well, and a few other endeavors before she finally set her sights on earning her teaching degree, and I'm sure her students thank her for doing that. And Alicia Poling. Alicia is a special education teacher and a 504 monitor at Mark Twain Elementary School in Kirkland, Washington. Alicia has taught in both self-contained and resource room programs. Uh, Prior to teaching in Washington State, she has taught art for five years and special education for one year in the state of Tennessee. All right, let's talk universal design for learning. Here with me today to talk about all things universal design for learning are Fatima Sami. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. We also have Jackie Duncan. Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you. And Alicia Poling. Good morning, Tom. Great. Great to see you all. Great to have you here. Really looking forward to our conversation today. And we've got a lot to talk about. Um, Really looking forward to it. Thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedules to join me today. And we're going to dig right into uh, UDL because I think there's a lot we can talk about. Uh, when it comes to you know your journeys and some of the advice you have for teachers as they think about you know forging ahead with their UDL journey, so I want to start with you and each of you and your breakthrough, uh, the breakthrough you had during your UDL journey. And Fatima, I'm going to start with you, but I'm going to ask all three of you to respond to the following question. So you've you've heard about UDL, you learned about UDL, and and maybe you started implementing some aspects of UDL, but then you had a moment. You you hit a moment where you had this breakthrough, where you thought to yourself, "Oh, UDL! Now I get it. I am totally all in now. I completely understand what this is all about." Fatima, let's start with you. What was that moment for you? Yeah, sure, Tom. Um, so I was introduced to UDL as part of our school improvement plan, and we had started by just. Um, watching some videos of Katie Novak and seeing some examples. And for me, um, the push to really implement it into my science classroom came as a result of frustration. Um, Going through some summative assessments with my students after our climate change unit, where um, the curriculum called for 
students to write congressional memos to um, their representatives to understand the impacts and mitigation plans of climate change. And for the past two years, when I did it that way, I just received really, really low engagement. And about 50% of my students completed the assignment. So it, like I said, it was really just a moment of frustration for me or my breaking point to say, I've got to do something differently. This is not working for my students. And started thinking, how can I incorporate UDL into my curriculum? Um, so I started off small. I started out with that same summative assessment and I changed the title. I called it Climate Change Stories. And um, in terms of engagement, I had students identify a focus area in the world and stress choosing an area that was of significance to them. So a lot of my students chose places that um, their family were from or they visited or had a connection to. And then in terms of providing multiple means of representation, I created a list of resources to start kids off so they didn't feel stuck and didn't know where to start in their research. So I had some printed articles, infographics, databases, reference websites, and videos that they can pull from. And then I opened up um, their products or their prove-its. So they could do slides, posters, videos, um, jam boards, infographics, some kids even did TikToks. And once I sort of made those changes, I had about like 90 to 95% of my students completed that project. So that was sort of like my aha moment. I was like, mm -hmm. kids can do this. We as educators have to provide the resources so they're able to engage in curriculum. Jackie, any thoughts on your breakthrough? What, what, what sort of breakthroughs did you have? When was that moment where you thought that this is it, I'm never going back. This is, this is what uh, I'm going to be all about going forward. I think it was like my third year in education. Uh, I was part of a closing the gap team. And with our local education service center, um, they taught us some UDL technique strategies, the whole thing. And I was uh, really intrigued by it. I like to be really active in the classroom and I love like feedback from my students. And um, what I realized is that I was doing a lot of the UDL uh, strategies already. And a lot of teachers are, they just don't know it yet. Um, it just makes you more intentional and streamlines how you do uh, your planning. And um, when I figured that out, I was like, hey, I'm all on board. And I tried to suck up every bit of PD that I could find, every book, everything after that. Absolutely. We are definitely going to dig into all of the learning that you all have done and all of the practical strategies that that you offer in terms of your classroom and, and things that many teachers can learn from your experience. Alicia, let's go to you and talk about your breakthrough moment, your moment when you realized universal design for learning was was what you were going to to incorporate into your classroom from this point forward. What was that breakthrough moment for you? Um, well, I had the opportunity to work with an educational consultant, um, and she kind of um, helped me understand the relationship between UDL and special education specifically. So, you know, UDL does benefit all students, but oftentimes, um, you know, as a special education teacher, you know, I have kids that uh, may have significant needs. And so it's like, how do we even make it bigger to support those students? Um, so that they can be included in the learning that's happening in their classroom. And so when I realized that UDL was the best method for lesson planning um, and that the end result of UDL was that all kids get to learn in the least restrictive environment, 
you know, as a special education teacher, you know, had I had been delivering services through a pullout model. So kids had to leave what they were doing in their classroom to come receive their services with me. And so what she did is she helped me kind of switch, make the switch so that kids, I can see how we can plan for um, all kids to, re to, re to stay in their classroom and receive um, what they need. And if you, and the biggest, the critical thing she, she taught me was if you look at the IDEA, the Individual uh, with Disabilities Educational Act, and you really look at how um, SDI is defined, it says it's adapting as appropriate to the needs of an eligible students, the content, methodology, or delivery of instruction. So it says, or it's, so you can pick one of those, right? Um, and, and that you can call that SDI if that's what the IEP team decides, right? And as long as it's intentional and um, helping the student access general education curriculum, then you can count that as SDI and kids can stay and be included in their classroom. Yeah, it's um, certainly uh, the foundation, as you mentioned right off the top there, Alicia, I love that reference to the idea that this isn't just specialized intervention. You know, what what is what is good for some learners is good for all learners. And we find that a lot of the strategies really are universally applicable. And, and that word universal design for learning um, there, there are ways to benefit all learners, not just those who might be identified as needing uh, finite or acute support or specialized support for sure. Jackie, I want to come back to you now and, and ask you a little bit to, to be a little bit more specific about planning. Talk about your planning process. What, what does UDL planning look like and how would you contrast, say, UDL planning from, say, the more traditional ways that teachers have planned units or, or planned lessons? How do you draw that contrast? What does that look like? I think, well, especially for me, traditionally I was taught to start with the material. So um, course material that I would gravitate towards are things that would interest me. And when you when I did that, I was taking the student completely out of that equation. So uh, with UDL, uh, you start with the end product. Um, well, actually, let me rephrase that. You start with the standard. So you look at the standard first. Um, and what I do is I try to keep it as simple as possible. I isolate the verbs. So what is it exactly looking for? What skill set do my students need to demonstrate? And then from there, it comes my favorite part is designing the product. Okay, mm -hmm. so I really enjoy that because I like to be really, I like, try to be really creative. Okay, um, I also am really transparent with my students. So I give them an overview of the process of how I do it. And then if they have some better ideas on this unit or they've got some um, something else that they'd like to propose instead of what I have for the final product or the options for the final product, I'm all for it. If it can hit the checkpoints and the standards that I that they need to, then why not develop that? bring it into the unit. But allowing the kids to be part of that process, you're empowering them and it really keeps your units fresh and interesting. So at our school, we have common planning. So what that means is twice a week, um, we have interventionists, which can be uh, EL, uh, English language teachers. It can be reading specialists, special education teachers, and gen ed teachers all plan together um, twice a week. And so what that allows us to do is everybody can kind of take off their, um, or I guess we should say that we don't like categorize kids by like, oh, this is going to be for, you know, these four kids that are EL. No, we don't do that. We take, um, we just kind of 
look through a lens of I'm a specialist at special education or I'm a reading specialist or I and here's what I can provide to support all students. Um, um, and so that way we've kind of taken the uh, approach where we're no longer in silos. Um, and so we are doing this collaboration planning, which really uh, um, lets you get very creative um, about how to make sure that all kids are engaged in the lesson, which is critical. It's critical. And so um, it's that's that's what we do at our school. And it's great to have all these different people who have these different lenses that they're looking through to kind of figure out what can I bring to the lesson? What's my piece of the puzzle? And so then when you're done, you end up with, you know, a great uh, lesson plan or unit plan um, that has all these different strategies and supports that um, allows all kids to learn again in their general education classroom. Yeah, it, it's interesting, you know, listening to, to Jackie and Alicia talk, you talking about your planning and how it's almost as if the focus shifts, right? You, you, we used to plan with the idea that how am I going to teach this content or these skills? And now the question is, how do I provide maximum access for all learners? How do I create the opportunity for all to have that support? Fatima, any thoughts on planning and how that's different as well for you? I, mean, I would agree both with Alicia and Jackie. I mean, I really want to emphasize that backward design um, strategy, starting with your standards and objective. And I'm always thinking, what do I want students to be able to master at the end of a unit or a lesson? And what's acceptable evidence of that? And then, you know, doing the actual um, tasks that will lead to that and providing those options for students. Such an important thing to think about uh, the standards and beginning to think about. And I love the fact that you talk about Jackie highlighting the verbs and Fatima and Alicia echoing those thoughts, the idea that the verb itself really does help you with the cognitive rigor of the, the standard and, and helps you with your assessment methods and helps you understand the ways to gather evidence of learning beyond this, the verb. We think about the depth of thinking required and that backwards planning really does uh, help us create those opportunities for, for the pathways to, to, to reach that proficiency. So uh, I love that. Alicia, I want to come back to you. And, um, you know, we've this the topic has come up a couple of times already, um, but I want to talk about engagement. You know, teachers are constantly searching for answers for how to increase engagement and for how they can create resilient kind of tenacious learners. Uh, you know, students, this timeless refrain we hear from students is that uh, this is boring or you know, why are we learning this? Or when am I ever going to use this in, in my life? You know, we also see students who just kind of give up when learning gets tough. So I'm, I'm wondering about engagement and the sort of direct correlation between UDL, uh, the UDL uh, process and how you can purposefully address the issue of engagement with your students. Yeah, and this is um, something that I've witnessed and I'm extremely passionate about because, you know, I have kids who have learning difficulties or um, kind of social, you know, ex extra social struggles. And so, um, you know, if they're in a classroom and they're not engaged, it's just it's the achievement gap gets bigger, you know, and so it's critical for me to work with the gen ed teachers to make sure that that students are engaged in the learning. And a lot of times they have to understand why, mm -hmm. like, why do 
need to learn this. Why? 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 Because I have the why kids, you know? And so, uh, so I have to make sure like, well, this is why, you know, it's important. And so um, I think that is just that first piece is just having kids understand the why they're learning it um, is the first step in creating that engagement and relevance. Um, And especially like during the past year, during this pandemic, engagement has been such at the forefront because I've had so many students who, um, you know, at first we kind of had to tackle the connectivity issue and just like logistics. And then once you got kids connected to the material, it was like, how am I going to keep kids engaged in the learning through a computer? Mm. You know, how am I going to keep kids um, engaged to have attention issues? Like whenever they don't have anybody sitting next to them, to, to make sure they're staying on top. So engagement has been critical during the remote learning. Um, and so it's been interesting that so many teachers and we've all kind of worked to figure out how do we make sure like to keep them engaged. Number one, we've got to have engagement um, because if you don't have them engaged, then they're, you can't do any, you know, mm-hmm. you can't do the rest of the stuff. So you've got to like get that hook in there. And so, um, it's, it's just been interesting to watch how um, my own teaching has really changed over the past year. Um, you know, I've had to do more interactive games, learn, learn all these different platforms, you know, anything I can do to, you know, hook the kids in and to keep them engaged. So engagement is critical, yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree, Alicia. Um, additionally, the why it's Huge. I know you mentioned your kids, but I think it's for all kids. All students want to know the why. So I think I've spent a lot of time um, in my own practice making sure I tell the kids the why or tell them we are going to explore and discover the why along our process and this journey of learning whatever we may be learning and also making sure it's authentically relevant for them. Um, you know, making sure the kids can make a connection back to their own lives. And I first saw that when I had revamped my climate change story um, project. And when kids were able to invest in a location that has significance important to them, the products that they produce were astronomically um, better than what it was when it's like I'm writing a letter to somebody who I know is not going to read it or it's not going to make any difference. Um, I, so I think that's really, really important as well. Mm-hmm. To add to that, um, I think relationships they build with students kind of mm-hmm. alleviate this as well, because if you're able to build those relationships, uh, you're building trust. And if your students trust you, they're going to enter that learning environment with you. They're going to want to be there. Um, it's not going to alleviate it altogether. You're always going to get the why am I here, da, 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 but it really does help. And if you have, uh, I don't know half, half three quarters of your class, like, Hey, yeah, I'm invested. You the stragglers will follow. Yeah. And, and feedback too, um, just to add on getting feedback from kids. I've been very vulnerable with my students. Like, you know, well, we're going to try this. If you don't like it, be honest and we'll switch it up next class mm-hmm. or next time. So just giving them feedback and that they have some input in their learning goes a long way as well. My, my question back to the three of you would be, what do you do? I mean, not every sort of lesson unit topic is going to be relevant to every learner. So so beyond the attempts to bring relevance, which which I love the fact that all three of you've talked about that, 
What do you do in a situation where, where a teacher might come to you and say, look, you know, the student's just telling me they're just not interested. They're not, there's just no, how do you, how do you move past that? How do you help students see relevance where they don't see it or that engagement where they don't feel it? I think it goes back to what Jackie said, you know, that relationship. Um, you know, I have, I've worked with a lot of kids in the past that just, you know, for whatever reason, they just don't want to do work, you know, they just, um, um, and so it comes back to, you know, if that relationship, like, this is what we need to do. This is, this is going to be our job today. This is important, you know, because this is your job today, you know, so it's, it's, and so I'm going to help you. You don't have to do it alone. Um, but it's kind of like that feeling because there's usually all behaviors communication. So if there's reason they're not wanting to do the work, that's what we need to figure out. Like, what is the, what is, what, why are they, you know, what is the aversion? Is it a writing? Um, they, are they averse to writing? Is it, you know, but we go back to, you know, what are they trying to tell us through the behavior if they're not wanting to do the work? Does that make sense? Yeah. And also I think uh, adding to that would be, um, removing the barriers to that, right? So, and that's where UDL is so great at being able to think ahead and say, what are the barriers that are going to prevent students from completing this task? And then once you've kind of tackled that, if there's still some pushback, um, you know, I, I defer to my relationship with that student. And like Alicia says, okay, this is what we need to get done today. How can I support you in getting that done? Just to add on to that, um, to echo both of what Alicia and Fatima are saying, our students are, they're complex individuals. They've got a lot of stuff going on. And so, I mean, if they come into a classroom and they don't feel uh, respected, you're not going to be able to teach them anything. So being able to look at them through both of those lenses and to give them the space to listen to them and problem solve is really essential to having any working practice in your classroom. Yeah, it's it's amazing how everything always seems to come back to relationships and how we what kind of environment we create and the kind of connections we have with our with our learners. Uh, Fatima, I want to come back to you now and ask you something I see quite common in uh, my conversations with teachers and and in uh, sort of tangential conversations about UDL. Um, I, I've, I've heard many people assert, oh, UDL, uh, I already do that because I've been differentiating my instruction since the mid 2000s. So, you know, this is nothing new. So how do you answer somebody who says that? Because we know UDL and differentiation are not the same thing. So, so how do you respond to somebody who, who makes that statement to you? Oh, I'm, I'm already doing that because I've been differentiating for the last 15 years. Yeah, I would totally push back on that, Tom. I mean, I think UDL is more upstream differentiation is downstream. So I see UDL as how you proactively are evaluating the classroom instruction, the environment, and then providing access on the front end for all students, right? Mm -hmm. So it focuses on variability of all students, it's proactive. I mean, you even evaluate your physical space in the classroom, right? It's how my desk or tables are arranged, a barrier to learning or for students completing the task where differentiation is more reactive and it's more cause and effect, you know, and it's more focused on um, individual students or conforming to the norm and not necessarily, necessarily valuing the variety um, and planning for outside the margin kids. So um, that's how I would respond. Yes, 
and also I think the big the onus is also on on the educator when you're planning for UDL versus differentiation. And I feel like with the um for UDL, once you've kind of set in, you got the groove going so much easier where differentiation, I feel like you're always playing catch up, right? You can never get caught up because then you differentiate for one student, then you gotta differentiate for the other, as opposed to if you remove barriers for all students, then you're good to go. Exactly what Fatima said, you know, UDL is proactive, not reactive. And I am kind of stubborn. So when I first heard about UDL, I was like, this is differentiated instruction. And, um, and they were like, no, it's not. And so we had, so I, I was one of those people who were very skeptical. But once I kind of opened my mind and listened and, and understood that, no, it is different because it's proactive. It's we're talking about the planning process versus the in the moment instructional like decision making. And so then I started like, oh, okay, because I am also the 504 monitor at our school. So I teach, um, I have IEPs and kids on 504s. And so when I started seeing that, you mean the teacher is going to already have all of the supports in place and materials in place for students, you know, um, that may have, you know, unique needs. Oh, well, those, those things can help all kids. And yeah, this is a great idea because then you're not like putting fires out, right? You're coming in, you have a plan and it's a very intentional plan so that all kids, again, are engaged because if you're in, if they're all engaged, then they're learning, right? So, um, so that's, that was the like, oh, it is different, you know? So, um, so yeah, that was, I was one of those people, so. I was just going to say, I love Fatima's analogy of upstream and downstream. I've never heard that before. And I think it's fabulous, but, mm -hmm. um, with Alicia, I too was like, okay, I differentiate, like I, I do that stuff. But I think especially like with any teaching strategy, it's a tool, right? UD is a tool, but it's a tool that you're constantly evaluating. And I think that's important because you're evaluating yourself. You're letting your students evaluate you as well. And so you're always honing. And um, the other thing I wanted to say was that it ensures that the focus stays on the student and that your methods are completely accessible. Okay. And you're empowering the learners. You're not just, they're not passive. It's not a passive learning environment. Um, and, and you develop independent learners as well. Um, I don't think you can say that when you're just differentiating. So, well, um, one thing I wanted to add is a lot of times this, what would, this is the reality of what would happen. So if, if my, let's say a student of mine has significant, um, struggles with reading. Um, sometimes what would happen was if they're all doing a lesson and they're, the student is really struggling, you know, an alternative activity would be given to that student. And, you know, right then you change the trajectory, you know? And so with UDL, it's, we don't have to create those alternative activities. We are including all kids that are in the learning that has taken place. And so we're no longer, um, changing the trajectory, you know, and so not the gatekeepers anymore. And I think that's critical in the, in the cultural shift that needs to occur. Yeah. Yeah. 
second ditto. And it almost, I, when I am implementing a lesson that's fully UDL, I feel like I could sit back and I'm the facilitator, right? Mm -hmm. The kids are in control of their learning. And the only thing I need to control is when I'm checking in or when they're doing their whip around, share out. But it really is kids who are in control of their learning and they are able to do it. So question for anyone to jump in here, because I think it's important that we not maybe give the wrong impression to teachers, which is even though we plan for, you know, proactively and we think about uh, removing barriers and creating up maximum opportunities for students to access the learning, you are still going to have some students who emerge as being sort of unresponsive and requiring, say, tier two uh, interventions and supports. So are we talking about minimizing the number of students who might require that supplemental support? Are, are we are we talking about, you know, g giving ourselves the opportunity to maximize our minutes by reducing the number of students who might emerge versus the traditional planning, which is I teach it this way. And those of you who don't get it, I then will differentiate for you. Is that what we're talking about here? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so um, one of the things that I have kind of created and, and be, once again because i'm the 504 monitor i've mm -hmm. seen like the tier interventions so if you have like supports in place let's say in the environment um for example accommodations that used to be on 504 plans and iups are access to brick space you know um differentiated writing tools um you know special paper sentence starters you know all of these things that you know required a plan are now being considered best teaching practices. And so what has happened is you have all of these supports in place for kids, um, you know, at whatever, you know, wherever they are in the process of the learning that they can access. And I have seen a reduction in the amount of kids who go on to need like more tiered interventions. You know, we've been able to, um, I mean, we've been able to change the LRE, which is the least restrictive environment for a lot of my kids who qualify in reading because all of these, you know, they're getting assistive technology in the classroom. They're getting it read aloud. They're getting all these supports put in place. So they, and, and sometimes they just have trouble reading, right? Their comprehension, they can comprehend everything. They just have trouble reading. And now that they're having all of these tools in place and all kids are being able to access these, they don't have to leave their classroom and or they are exiting from reading on the IEP process. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's it's just an amazing thing to watch. But yes, absolutely it makes the difference. Yeah. Yeah. I I also think it gives um me, at least in my space, it gives me a little more time to spend with those kids who do need a little more individualized attention. So when everybody else is fine, I could spend an extra few minutes checking in with a student who may need more of my time where if I wasn't implementing UDL, then I'm sort of like strapped for that time because I can't get to everyone within my 50 minute class time. Mm -hmm. Well, and one of the strategies we just talked about at a, at a uh, planning session we had the other day, um, we're doing like a UDL math unit um, mock thing um, to kind of introduce teachers to the planning process, more teachers and um, so one of the things we talked about is, you know, how we can use like, um, like in our system, it's level one, level two, level three, level four, that's what grades are, yeah. right? And so one of the things we talked about exactly what Fatima was saying is um, empowering maybe the kids who are um, getting the concept 
and having them become teachers um, because doing the doing the activity and demonstrating proficiency um, is one skill. Teaching it requires additional skills. So why not go take it a step further and empower students that are able to grasp it um, easy, easier and help them, you know, give them the power to be instructional uh, models in the classroom. I mean, it's like a win-win for everybody, right? And um, yeah, so just things like that, changing that mind shift where it's putting the control back into the kid's hand, like Fatima said, we're facilitators now. It's it's a huge, um, it's amazing to watch. And to echo both of those, I think it really allows us, to, our students that are really struggling, it gives us time to put in some interventions that may need to be done outside of the classroom. So we can look at the support systems we have and find out um, exactly how we can support them in other areas of their life. I think that's really important as well. It's, it's interesting because when you think about um, each tier of, of intervention is subsequently more labor intensive. And so the investment in universal strategies is a way of preventing sort of an emergence of, of students being unresponsive. We all know that that we're all busy uh, teachers. I, I don't know an educator that's not busy. And so it really becomes an issue of how do we distribute our minutes? How do we how do we provide support? So if our universal design is able to bring more students, you know, into the learning at a more efficient way, then we have more time for those who need that supplemental uh, support at, at the tier two level. Because uh, each tier, again, is going to be much more labor intensive and more focused on the individual versus a targeted group-based kind of intervention at tier two. So I appreciate the, 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 the proactive nature of that, because I think whenever you're proactive, you are, you're in a little bit more control. And I don't mean control from a um, you know, I'm trying to control the students, but what I mean is you're you're in more control over how you respond. You can plan, you can anticipate, versus a differentiation piece or or thinking about I always have to react to what emerges and being able to proactively plan for mm -hmm. that is is always always more efficient. So Jackie, let's let's pivot now to assessment. Um, at first glance, you know, teachers might feel overwhelmed with the prospect of assessment uh, with the UDL, especially with the idea of students, you know, being afforded multiple opportunities and multiple means to show what they know. Um, so what are some of the key aspects for you from your perspective? Um, what are some of the key aspects of assessment that sort of honor the true spirit of UDL without teachers feeling completely stressed out about assessment? Well, um, like I said before, I like to keep it simple. So um, it can be really overwhelming for a teacher when you get first acquainted with UDL and you start looking at um, options to be like, wow, how am I supposed to keep up with offering so many different assessments and the grading is going to be insane? Um, I like to keep it into groups of three. So uh, when I evaluate my standard and I look at what I'm, uh, decide what skill they're going to be assessed on, I develop three options for the final project or, or end of the lesson when they are demonstrating the skill. Um, and then again, like I said, I was, I'm transparent. So uh, I tell the kids, hey, if they've got a better idea or they have um, something that they'd like to add to it, or they think that this can be streamlined, I'm all for it. And we look at it together and see if it's hitting all of the requisites I have. Yeah, very similar to Jackie. I do the same thing and um, I shared earlier that um, my, it was actually coined by my social studies 
teacher and on my uh, team keeps pathways, right? So it doesn't matter how you get there, as long as by the end of the lesson of the unit, we know that you can master the skill. And so there's always a learn it option and then you'll prove it sort of like the assessment piece. So I also like to provide three options and then an other it where students are able to check in with me and pitch me an idea. Um, and along with that prove it section, there's always a criteria of success that you know, um, connects back to the standards and what skills students should be able to master or do or show. And so I just create that criteria of success based on the standards and then kids show me their prove it. So whether they write it, they draw it, you know, they create a video, a song, a poem, as long as those criteria of success and standards are in there, then that works. And then everybody's being graded on the same criteria. And I don't need a separate criteria because you drew me a picture versus you wrote something. Well, I'm going to echo what Fatima said about, you know, the pathway might look a little bit different, but as long as they can demonstrate um, proficiency of the skill or, I mean, it just progress, you know, learning progress, um, then um, I think, you know, we should kind of open up the different ways that kids can demonstrate what they know. Um, some of the things you know, that I think about when I think about assessment is how are we going to remove barriers? Um, if you have a um, multiple choice test, you know, like we have so many multiple choice tests and, um, and you know, they're, they're not the most culturally responsive tests. Let's just be honest. And so, um, yeah. And so it's, how can we, you know, allow kids to show what they know, um, if, if, if the district tells us we have to give a multiple choice test for this topic, you know? And so I think just um, kind of having that conversation and again, in the planning process versus trying to, you know, be reactive. And then also um, grading, like I get asked all the time, well, what am I supposed to give them a grade on? You know, I gave them all these supports and I'm like, well, um, you know, their parents are aware that they have these in their plan. So when you, give them a grade, the parent knows it's because of these supports that they got, you know, earned a level three, you know, it's, you know, cause teachers have this thing of like, but I want to know it independently what they can do. And I'm like, but why not just, can we catch them being successful? Like, how about changing the mindset, you know, and, you know, if they can be successful with supports, great, you know, we've done our job, you know? So I think it's just that shift again. Yeah. Creating, uh, it's, it, you know, especially the, um, the accommodations we make for, for some learners are actually what creates fairness and equity. Uh, it's, it's not unfair. It's, it's an opportunity for students to have uh, equal opportunity to be successful because we have removed those barriers. And some of the barriers mean we have to uh, provide those additional supports uh, for those learners as we go. So Alicia, I want to stick with you because you, you, you brought up the idea of culturally responsive assessments. And I'm thinking about um, UDL as a, as a framework for maximizing uh, the opportunity for inclusion and equity. And so you, you brought up you know, cultural responsiveness and equity for all learners, but also equity from uh, a racial equity or a culturally responsive. And I'm gonna ask all three of you to jump in on this uh, in a moment, but what is it about UDL that gives educators the, the clearest opportunity to create true equity uh, in our schools? 
Well, um, you know, if we think about the public school system, it's it, to me, in my opinion, it's the last attempt to level the playing field, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I feel like we have a um, moral obligation to um, do everything that we can to include all students. And to me, it all comes, it always comes back to inclusion because we've seen, we have a history of segregation and oppression, right? Especially of certain demographics. And so, you know, if you look and see what, what segregation did to um, groups of people, it's, we need to do whatever we can to be inclusive. And so, you know, as someone who works with kids with disabilities, you know, it really comes back to me, like, what do I need to do or what can I do to help students access the learning that has taken place so they don't have to be excluded and leave their classroom to go receive some magic potion in another location. So because special education is a service, right, it should be portable. So, um, and I've seen, I've had kids who, especially when they get to like third and fourth and fifth grade, they don't want to leave their classroom, you know? And so um, once again, and they'll say, I don't want to leave what my peers are doing. I don't want to, um, you know, because I'm not having this picture of success or what society has deemed a success, you know, I don't want to have to leave the group of what my friends are doing and go and be segregated. And so, um, and we know that there's a disproportionate amount of kids in special education. So it's like inclusion, it all comes back to inclusion. And so um, UDL, to my, in my opinion, is the way to include all kids because mm -hmm. what works, like you said it earlier, what works for some kids actually benefits all kids. Mm -hmm. So why not do whatever we can to include all kids, you know? So, this is going to echo a lot of what Alicia was just saying, but um, to keep it really short, pathways, there's not one worn pathway and each of our students are unique and they all have a different path. Each of their paths are going to be different. And so we need to respect that. But UDL focuses on accessibility and empowerment, which I think it makes it very powerful in the classroom in that way. So I feel like I keep saying this, but it's really important. Relationships are the most important thing in the classroom and you have to be authentic. And the students need to know that you respect them, who they are and where they come from. And I think that is a really great piece on racial equity and cultural responsiveness. But to do that, you got to know who they are. So um, I think that's how I would sum that up for me. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Fatima, from your perspective, we certainly I think one of the things that we noticed during the pandemic that that was magnified was how we define success and and it's no secret that success in school achievement in school has has been very narrowly defined through a kind of white eurocentric lens of what is acceptable evidence mm -hmm. so from your perspective how does udl begin to create a more culturally expansive learning environment for all learners yeah thank you for that question it's so important um and one that i think all educators educators need to dig a little deeper to figure out how they do that within their own teaching and within their school. But I mean, I, UDL is intentional, you know, and in order to implement UDL, you have to be intentional because the planet piece is so big in the sense of you are sitting down and saying, how can I remove barriers so all my students can be successful? So I think that intentional piece is key here. And I think UDL, what it does really well uh, too is it kind of 
tackles and dismantles some of that white supremacy cultural teaching that we've been, that I was taught when I was learning to become an educator, is specifically that there's only one way, one right way to do things in the classroom or to teach, right? Or mm -hmm. com students having to conform to the normal and defining what normal teaching practice is. So I think what UDL is making sure we have there is accessibility for all students by recognizing that they have variability to learn. And obviously that was heightened during the pandemic. Yeah, the uh, the pandemic definitely highlighted some of the frustration. I mean, it initially started with frustration that teachers had that some of their uh, traditional work, the things they'd had students do from assignments to, to demonstrations to performances just didn't transfer to the home environment. And it really did expose uh, and I don't mean that necessarily in a completely negative way, but it did expose the necessity to have some conversations that may have yeah. been put off and, and having to have a conversation about what is quality evidence and, and how can students demonstrate their learning. I think those teachers like yourselves who are well-versed in UDL practices and, and processes are, are able to create those kind of inclusive environments as well. Um, yeah. I think it's a great opportunity for us to redefine what it means to to show what you know or to reach proficiency with the standards that we're, we're teaching. Fatima, I want to stick with you on this last question mm -hmm. as we finish up today. Um, and we're going to sort of take the big picture look and in, in thinking about advice to teachers as they get started. So Fatima, uh, what advice do you have for teachers? Okay, they've listened to the three of you. Uh, they've been dabbling in UDL a little bit. They've read some books. They've maybe gone to a, a, an online professional learning experience or a conference in years past. And now they're, they're kind of ready to get started, but they're hesitant because they're not sure what to do first. So what advice, and I'm going to come to all three of you on this, what advice do you have for a teacher who is looking to begin their UDL journey? Like how should they get started? Start with your standards and objectives. That is the clearest way to know that students are going to be able to um, master what they need to master. Um, and when I started, it was hard because in science, it wasn't clear cut. There was times I had to do lab. I'm like, well, how am I going to UDL at lab? Um, mm -hmm. So using my standards and knowing what students had to be able to master, what skills they need to have at the end of the unit was really crucial and helpful in terms of then that backward design and then working through your individual lessons or tasks or activities for, to help students reach mastery. Yeah. Starting with the standards is always a, a great place to begin because you understand what the end goal is and, and what the demonstration should reach. Jackie, for you, advice for teachers getting started with their UDL journey. Okay, so I would say don't get overwhelmed. Uh, start small, do one lesson, one unit, and you're going to see improvement. Your students are going to be more engaged. And when you see that, you're going to be hooked. You're going to want to do more. UDL is going to help you be more intentional with your students and with your own practice. And you're going to see a all those gains that you want in your classroom. Great. Alicia, advice to teachers getting started. Well, I would say don't be stubborn. You know, like be teachable, right? You know, like, because I mean, I really had to change my whole mindset of what learning looks like, what a classroom looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, celebrate neurodiversity. You know, like how awesome is it that there's so many different kids, we're all different. You know, um, I tell my kids all the time, it would be so boring if everybody was the same, you know, right. and so really just embracing that um, the fact that we're all different and, 
you know, another thing I would say is um, a lot of the times that the curriculum that we have uh, is most kids or all kids can, can access that. There's no need for replacement curriculum anymore. And, um, and if, especially um, the biggest thing I can say is to presume competence. So when you have a student in your classroom and maybe you've gotten some information and you're like skeptical, like take a step back and always presume competence because all kids can learn. Yeah, great, great advice for teachers getting started. Uh, certainly, uh, I love the advice of, of starting small. There, it is cliche, think big, start small, but it's important that we start to be confident and competent in, yes. in what we're, we're pursuing. Certainly when it comes to the assessment piece, providing opportunities, maybe we don't start off by giving students a wide range of opportunities, but at least there is some choice. There is some agency. There's an opportunity to show what they know. And if they come to you, as as a few of you mentioned uh, earlier, if they come to you with another idea, then we'd be open to that, uh, that they can show their learning in that way. So it really does put the spotlight uh, on the students. So uh, Jackie, Alicia, uh, Fatima, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. I really uh, think there's a lot to learn. Uh, still lots to to grow. A lot of us uh, learning about UDL and continuing to grow in this area, but your advice and, and your insight has been most helpful. So thanks for being here today. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Tom. Tom. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. One of the most powerful tools every teacher has in their instructional tool belt is anticipation. Our ability to anticipate learning inhibitors, our ability to anticipate potential misunderstandings, and to anticipate engagement opportunities is a powerful tool, if we use it. Anticipation is at the heart of being proactive. I know that word gets thrown around a lot, but being proactive is the only way we will create real equity and inclusion in our schools. Now contrast that with the traditional paradigm. It says sort of, I teach a concept this one singular way. Or to take it even further, I teach everything this singular way. And when students struggle or simply need longer to learn, their internal dialogue will quite likely turn to, what's wrong with me? This of course gets magnified when teachers express, well, I taught it, you didn't learn it. The, I taught it, you didn't learn it refrain is code for, it's your fault. Or, there must be something wrong with you because most everyone else got it. Now, teachers of course are not saying that outright. It's kind of the way the system has been set up, or at least it's how the system of teaching and learning has been conditioned and sustained. There will always be a need for reaction and interventions. No pedagogy, curriculum, or formative assessment strategy is foolproof. There will always be a need for tier two and tier three intervention strategies. But here's the question. Do you want to go wide or do you want to go deep with the distribution of your instructional minutes? When you consider an RTI or an MTSS or a PBIS three-tiered continuum, all the same logic, remember that the target numbers are malleable. Most of us know that the target number for each tier sits in order at 80%, 15%, and 5%. Right, so tier one, which is the universal tier of prevention. Let me say that again. The universal tier of prevention. See, the word universal is right there. 
is set at about 80%. In other words, you can gauge the success or lack thereof of your tier one strategies or your tier one approach by whether or not roughly 80% of your students have been positively responsive. Okay, so that leaves 20% remaining. Tier two, referred to of course as a secondary tier or of, of supplemental support, the success rate there is gauged at an additional 15%, right? So this is a targeted group-based support level and it's generally thought to be successful if only 5% of your population remain unresponsive to that tier's intervention. So between tier one and tier two, we should be targeting about a 95% success rate, right? So usually this, you know, at the tier two, we're talking about an existing structure or system in the school that the student, should it be necessary, can be programmed into rather quickly. The remaining 5%, that's where we hit tier three, individualized support. So if tier two is about fitting the student into an existing structure or existing program, tier three is about building the program of intervention and support to the individual. So I like to refer to the three tiers along the lines of three Ps. Tier one is the tier of prevention. Tier two is the tier of program. Not a shrink wrap binder, but an existing structure, system, et cetera, of supplemental support and tier three is about being personalized. So prevention, program, personalized. And each tier, this is a really important point, each tier of intervention is subsequently more labor intensive than the previous one. But the levels are fluid and we have to remember that. There's an investment piece in what we do with UDL. So if you, for example, take a very narrow approach to instruction, you could be looking at, I'm just gonna throw numbers out here for effect, you could be looking at, say, a 70% success rate at tier one versus an 80%. So that leaves 30% remaining, which means your tier two could become, you know, 20% versus 15%, and that leaves tier three at 10%. Tier three, a 10% tier three is unsustainable. No school has the time, the budget, the breadth of expertise to have a plus 10% tier three. Okay, so if you have a a 10% or a 15% or a 20% tier three, then you have a tier one issue. You have figuratively pushed students through the triangle, if you will, or through the pyramid with either narrow choices or poor choices at the previous tiers. Now with a 10%, 15%, 20% tier three, now it's triage. But remember, Okay, again, each tier is more labor intensive, but what if we invest in UDL? What if we proactively plan to maximize success at the universal level of intervention, and that's tier one? We invest in all learners, removing all barriers right from the start. So if we do that, there is a very real chance that 80% at tier one becomes 90%. Again, just putting numbers out there for effect. 15% becomes, you know, 7%, and 5% at tier three becomes 3%. So the 80, 15, and five becomes, hypothetically, 90, seven, and three. Well, what's the big deal about that? It's a massive deal, okay? Because in a school, for example, of 1,500 students, the difference between a 5% and a 3% uh, tier three we're talking 30 students. So we're talking about 75 individual student support plans versus 45, okay? 
30 fewer students on individualized support plans in a school of 1,500 students. That's a massive difference. Because in schools, now, in, in schools where specialized services are siloed, a teacher might not notice, but in a collective environment where the responsibility is shared, you know, there's no such thing as your kids and my kids and regular kids and all of that stuff. It makes a huge deal. Again, you have the same number of minutes distributed to 45 students versus 75 students. I mean, common sense tells us we're going to be more successful. And of course, this also includes, at Tier 1, taking a more culturally expansive view of the entire instructional process where so often racialized students are seen to need special services when in fact the issue is an exclusionary pedagogy, exclusionary curriculum, and exclusionary assessment practices. And just think back to the conversation I had with Yvette Jackson back in May. The need for interventions in special services and personalized strategies will always be present in our schools, but an investment in understanding the UDL guidelines and making UDL your default planning framework is how we're going to live up to the promises made by so many of our mission statements. It's how we're going to live up to the promises we made to ourselves when we entered this profession and we dedicated ourselves to making a difference. It's how we are going to truly achieve excellence for all. Remember to follow the podcast to stay up to date. That's at Tom Shimmer Pod on Twitter. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Tom Shimmer. Shimmer Education on Facebook, Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram, and Tom Shimmer Podcast on YouTube. You can also email the podcast, TomShimmerPod at gmail.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. And please keep spreading the word about the podcast. I really appreciate it. Happy summer, everyone. Happy summer, everyone.